Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Checking in on the movie theater business, young men have been driving the rebound for movie theaters. As studios have begun to release big-budget movies in theaters, the films that have made the most money are those that are catering to this demographic. Young men have been more comfortable returning than older people and women after shutdowns. For more on how this is influencing what entertainment looks like for everyone else, we'll speak to Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Ever since theaters reopened following COVID, studio chiefs have really been looking at the data to try to figure out who is coming back. And a couple of lessons that they've learned is that older audiences, no surprise, are the most reluctant to go back into the theater. And women also are um, staying away. And so that leaves young men who have been showing up really quite regularly. And so if you look at the movies that have performed better than other releases in the past year and a half or so, they are movies that skew toward that demographic. So think of Spider-Man, No Way Home, or The Batman, or Uncharted, or as you mentioned, Morbius. These are movies that obviously before the pandemic were ruling the box office as well. I mean, we were in a bit of a superhero moment even before COVID. For sure, yeah. But it seems like this trend is really cementing that uh, phenomenon and to the point where a studio chief who's deciding whether or not to take the risk to release a film in what remains an uncertain marketplace can rely on young men more than really any other demographic. My producer, Victor, is a, a very young man, and he just told me, too, he went to the movies too specifically to go see Morbius over this past weekend. So, uh, you know, when I saw this uh, this article, I was like, it's proven, right? It just in my own personal life, anecdotally, through my producer over here. You know, but what happens too is it really changes a lot of these strategies. So when executives are looking at who's turning out to the movies, they change release dates. They start putting other movies in a, a more prominent marketing scheme and really kind of changes the entertainment for everybody because now these are the movies that are being uh, bandied about. These are the movies that are uh, they're putting a lot of effort into. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're movies that can justify a theatrical release. That's the big difference is the box office overall is still really struggling. You referenced Victor, the producer, and I spoke to a, a 14-year-old guy here in Los Angeles on um, Friday night, and he was just seeing Uncharted. And I said, well, you know, what else have you seen lately? And he had seen Spider-Man and Batman. And he, I think, thought that this was kind of a, a pretty casual hobby of his compared to everything else he's doing, but it really kind of puts him in the top or maybe one percentile of moviegoers in the country because going to see more than one movie a year these days is, is more and more unusual, let alone seeing six or seven. Right. And distribution chiefs tell me that that is another key difference is that the frequent moviegoers have returned post-COVID, but the casual moviegoers, the people who might venture out once or twice a year, they, it seems, haven't returned. And now the big question will be, will they ever? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the quotes that the, that 14-year-old kid uh, that uh, he told you that uh, struck out to me, he said, I watch basically all of the big movies. And to the point of all of what we're talking about, right, all of the big movies are now being catered to this demographic. So that's what you're going to be seeing a lot of there. You know, I myself was a, a pretty frequent moviegoer pre-pandemic. And obviously, you just kind of got out of the habit of going. 
I've been to a number of movies since uh, things have started opening up, but I've not gone with that frequency that I used to go back just yet. And I don't know. I I don't know if that changes for me. You know, I'm uh, very comfortable at home. The streaming stuff is, uh, I mean, you know, we just went through the Oscars, right? A number of streaming movies were nominated and won awards. So you're getting just as good entertainment now in the comfort of your home. Exactly. And I think you're absolutely right. The the rise of streaming is the major component here. And during the pandemic, what was already a priority at studios became the priority. So every major studio in Hollywood, except for one, has its own in-house streaming service. So Universal has Peacock, Warner Brothers has HBO Max, Disney has Disney Plus, and so on. And so if you're running one of those studios, you have several options. You can send the big movie to the movie theater, but you can also make smaller romantic comedies or dramas and send them to your streaming service and try to use them to sell subscriptions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I made a note too with that because, you know, in the back in the day, it used to be a girlfriend or a wife getting her, her guy to go see a rom-com with them. Now it's the other way around. The execs are betting on these younger men to get their girlfriends to go see these action movies, these superhero movies, maybe their parents or grandparents. You know, so the, that whole dynamic has kind of shifted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the 15-year-old I met here in L.A., he had taken his girlfriend to see Uncharted. I didn't get a chance to ask her if that was her choice. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. I've come to think of it. But you're right. I think the studio executives are hoping that these young men will function as something of an early adopter and start to bring more people out to the auditoriums. Because to be honest, it's still pretty dicey out there. I mean, these, these movies we're talking about are making a lot of money, but it's really a David and Goliath situation where there's not much left for the others. Well, we'll continue to monitor all of this. I love going to the movies and uh, you know, I'm hoping the experience does continue and doesn't die out there. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. I love going to the movies, too. And, and, and I guess this article proves it keeps us young, right? <laughs> <laughs> we qualify as young men now. There you go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you. Bye-bye. Attitudes about drugs have been changing for a long time. And right now, the use of certain drugs in small amounts is beginning to be claimed by wellness culture. Microdosing of magic mushrooms or even MDMA is getting more attention and even rewriting the definition of what it means to be sober. While research remains limited, many feel that the positive effects of small doses can be beneficial to their lives. For more on the new soberish, we'll speak to Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. There definitely is like a shift in perspective for like perception on kind of drug policy in America. You really see it everywhere. There's more people using marijuana than in the past. There's more people that are pretty ambivalent about marijuana laws, like kind of in a shockingly short span of time that people become, you know, way more amenable to the idea of people using marijuana medicinally or recreationally. There's a lot of traction on sort of psychologists using like MDMA or psilocybin. Actually, you know, I don't actually know how that's pronounced. Magic mushrooms. It's one of those words you see written out, but I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> I, I've seen it as a, a psilocybin. Is that what I've heard? <laughs> psilocybin. All right, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, like using that in like talk therapy for like for PTSD, uh, you know, patients and things like that. And it's, it's, I think the thing I found sort of interesting as I dug into this stuff, it's, it's, weirdly kind of like bipartisan like even like a state like texas you know who has done some pretty hardline right-wing stuff and their legislator recently has kind of cleared the way to use psychedelics to study them as how they can be applied kind of medicinally so yeah that that was kind of the impetus kind of diving in and then from there i spoke to some people who have microdosed or just are using sort of 
things that 20, 30 years ago would be considered to be street drugs as part of their kind of day-to-day sort of sober routine, like having a spritz of uh, psilocybin and uh, that being part of like a, what they would consider to be a sober lifestyle. Yeah. Like those two things, being on drugs and being sober, the, the lines I think are becoming sort of blurred there in, in, in an interesting way. Well, you wrote it in the article pretty well. So what all these things that were once considered contraband are being claimed by wellness culture, you know, anything Mm -hmm. to make you feel a little bit better. And it's kind of making this new definition of sobriety, right? And you think about uh, things like people taking antidepressants and and whatnot, and I know it helps a lot of people, but a lot of people don't feel normal, don't feel good after a while. And so these things can be like an alternative and no one's going to say, well, they're on antidepressants, they're high right now. And, you know, if you're doing really low doses of the magic mushrooms, I know that's a very popular one right now it might not carry you to the point of like you're high and incapacitated. And so this is kind of what we're talking about. The stigmas around some of these things are breaking down mm-hmm. and, and people are opening themselves up to it. Yeah. yeah. I spoke to one woman who has been through kind of the whole gamut of uh, trying to make themselves sort of live better in the sort of therapeutic or medicinally acceptable way. You know, it went through years of therapy, some very much of self-help books, you know, just trying to make positive changes, you know, been through a lot of Antidepressant, and she, I think she kind of told me something interesting that I think gets to the crux of the piece is that like she feels like she started microdosing on and magic mushrooms and says that that has improved her mood, says that she never really feels high, just kind of, kind of brightens her up to, you know, the world around her. She's never like tripping. It just sort of it open, opens her up a little bit and, right. and makes her feel better. And she told me that she, she's always felt way higher, quote unquote, on, on Lexapro than she ever did microdosing, that she felt way more under the influence when she was going through the more sort of traditional or prescriptive path to trying to improve her mood than she did when she kind of got out into the wilderness a little bit with uh, how she was trying to make herself feel better. So, yeah, I, I think what, what you're saying is right. But like, I guess it's it's kind of trite and old school now, the idea that like, you know, oh, you're, you know, going to. Right. Eat some magic the, mushrooms. You're gonna go <laughs> run into traffic or whatever. But exactly. even, even despite that, that that attitude has shifted quite dramatically in the last couple of years. The science around all of this microdosing and and even some of these other drugs is very thin right now. As we know, mm. they're all Schedule One drugs. Even marijuana is on the federal level, which is we've heard for many many years. It's always limited the amount of research that we can do on these things. And now I know states are opening themselves up to it more so they can do that research, but that's always been a problem that it's kind Mm -hmm. of coming into this wellness culture area, but the research surrounding it is thin. We just, a lot of it is anecdotal stuff that we see, you know, some limited studies that we get that show benefits, but across the board, we haven't proven those benefits yet. That's been, like you said, that's been an issue forever. It's, it's, it's too hard to, stu- to study some of these drugs in America, they, I, especially the weirdly enough, what is it, it's a, most of the red tape is around cannabis to this day. Like that, that's we would both consider that to be one of the more milder, more, more the more mainstream accepted drugs in our culture. And yet that one's always been really hard to study. Uh, interestingly, though, like I, I spoke to a few experts in drug policy and there is like a lot of again, I'm not like a doctor, so I can't really speak to the like. The, the, the specific specificity of what the evidence is saying, but a lot of studies have come back saying that there is a positive correlation with therapy and MDMA and therapy and yeah. psychedelics and things like that. I mean, that was, that kind of took me back. The idea of someone, you know, uh, taking a party drug before going into talk therapy kind of blew my mind. But I mean, the research says what it is, you know? And uh, so I, I, I was surprised at 
I kind of went into the story assuming that a lot of the research was going to be pretty thin and inconclusive. And I was surprised to kind of find that that wasn't necessarily the case. Luke Winky, contributor to Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, an update to a story that was first reported on last fall. Teen girls are still going into doctor's offices with TikTok-related tics and other disorders as well. While some of these tics might seem like Tourette's, they're actually being diagnosed with functional neurological disorders, which can include verbal tics and abnormal body movements. But researchers supporting theories that some of these girls were also susceptible to other things, as once they got treatment for the tics, other disorders began to develop. For more on this, we'll speak to Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Good news and some bad news. The good news is some of the earliest patients that have been coming to doctors with these tick behaviors um, have gotten a lot better. Um, Doctors have been prescribing cognitive behavioral therapy, um, in some cases antidepressants if there was an underlying um, depression or anxiety, um, and, and sometimes, you know, just staying off TikTok for um, periods of time. Right. Um, so a lot of those early patients did show improvement and either resolved their ticks altogether or they became less frequent and less problematic, less disrupt- disruptive. Um, however, there still are new patients coming in to doctor's offices with ticks. Um, several of the doctors I spoke to several months ago, I went back to, and they said they're still seeing a lot of new patients in their practices. And to be clear with all of this, they're not coming in with Tourette's. You know, that's the closest thing that a lot of people know and recognize. So that's why it gets those associations. But they're not coming in with Tourette's. They were actually being diagnosed with functional neurological disorders, which can include some tics and abnormal body movements. Exactly. And it it is an important distinction to make because while many of the videos um, on TikTok have the hashtag Tourette's, um, what these girls are coming down with isn't um, necessarily Tourette's. And in fact, there's some, there's some dispute about whether all of the people in the videos on TikTok actually have Tourette's or something else. But um, it, it can look like Tourette's, so it can be a little confusing. But uh, what the doctors have found is that the girls that they're seeing, um, they don't have an underlying neurological disease. Um, you know, Tourette's is a nervous system disorder. So what the girls have is real, and, but it's not tied to an underlying disease, which means the good news there is that they can unlearn that behavior that they have, um, you know, come to exhibit. And, um, you know, they do have vocal tics and some abnormal bodily movements that they can't control until they learn the techniques um, to bring that under control. Um, And some of the patients that um, these doctors have seen have had their tics resolved, but they've gone on to develop other disorders in some cases eating disorders or tremors or non-epileptic seizures, um, things that suggest to these doctors that um, what was underlying the, you know, their initial tick disorder was actually something that has gone untreated or maybe undiagnosed or misdiagnosed earlier. Um, and some of the new research has actually um, found and kind of confirmed what doctors believe to be the case earlier on in this, which is that, um, you know, a lot of these teens, you know, already had some sort of untreated disorder. And um, that was making them more susceptible to um, developing new disorders. So until that, those underlying issues are resolved, you know, they can't really fully get better. Even right. if the ticks themselves go away, there's, there's maybe something else still going on that needs to be treated. You know, one thing that might explain why, you know, these 
ticks are still a thing is that mm-hmm. these these videos on TikTok are still very popular. The the views of these TikTok videos containing the hashtag Tourette's have risen by almost a billion since I last wrote about this. Wow. So yeah. um, people, Lots people of the videos are still there. They're, yeah. they're being watched. Yeah, and we talked so, about it the last um, time too. I, I've stumbled upon yeah. these and they're interesting. They're interesting to watch and you know you do kind of see mm-hmm. the ticks and, and all that. So um, yeah, definitely. That's also part of it. The, the community out there is big where a lot of people are tuning into all that. And so doctors are seeing an increase in visits for these ticks, like I said, mostly in girls. And at the same time, we've seen that boys have fared better, at least according to a CDC report, when it comes to all of this stuff, when it comes to mental health, weekly visits for mental health. And one of the things, interestingly enough, right, you talk about uh, how good or bad video games can be. You know, one some theorize that boys are doing a little bit better because they found an outlet from social isolation when they're playing these online multiplayer games. Yeah, at least they're connecting with people, talking to people. And so maybe they're doing a little bit better because of that. Again, that's just one theory, but that's what they're pointing to, at least. Yeah, I mean, it could be several reasons. And, and one of the reasons the CDC cited for the fact that boys haven't had as many weekly emergency room visits for mental health issues during the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, is because um, certain mental health conditions in boys might go unrecognized or maybe boys are less likely to seek help. Um, there could be numerous things. But but I have written previously about how during the shutdown phase of the pandemic, uh, a lot of boys, you know, went on video games and they were able to connect with their friends at, or maintain, you know, friendships that way through, you know, speaking to other players and friends while they were enjoying the video games. Um not to say that girls don't play video games because they do too, but um, boys also spend less time than girls on social media. There's been a lot of, you know, a lot of research on that. Right. And social media has been found in many studies to magnify feelings of loneliness and depression. So if, you know, if more girls are on social media, maybe playing fewer video games than boys, you could maybe see how that could lead them to, um, you know, feeling more isolated, especially during that earlier phase of the pandemic. What has TikTok said for their part? Because doctors aren't just saying, hey, TikTok is causing this. There could be a correlation with some of the actions that are going on, but it's not a causational thing, at least uh, now, at least uh, what research shows right now. So what has TikTok said, at least for their part in all this? Yeah, TikTok said that they have, you know, consulted with experts who also, you know, said that um, correlation does not mean causation. Um and that, you know, for many people, TikTok has been a really great way for people to, you know, express themselves, um, find support and kind of quash the stigma of mental health. Um, and, but one of the things TikTok is working on is diversifying the videos its algorithm recommends to viewers, trying to work on ways to not have the same type of same category of content constantly shown to viewers and kind of mix it up a little so people aren't just seeing, you know, all of one type of thing, especially if it's problematic for particular viewers. Well, uh, it'd be interesting to see as research continues on this to see if those numbers still stay up, those visits from girls coming in with these ticks. So just something to keep monitoring. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.